So this last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the story of the Bible. I wonder if um, someone was to ask you, what is the story of the Bible all about? I wonder how you would explain it to them. Normally, with a book, you can get an idea from the contents page. But if you try that with the Bible, it looks like this. Mostly, the chapters are just people's names, and they don't even seem to have any surnames. There are also some weird-sounding ones like Numbers and Deuteronomy and Revelation. Most people who try reading it cover to cover from start to finish give up around about Leviticus. And uh, some people just skip the Old Testament completely because if they're very honest, they don't really know why it's there in the first place. So they just start with the story of Jesus in the New Testament which is kind of okay to a point, but the problem with that is that the first three quarters of the Bible story is about stuff that happened before Jesus. And Jesus himself came into an existing story that had been going on for thousands of years. He came into a context. He was born into a family and a people who were part of an ongoing story. So what is this Bible story all about? And how can we explain it to our friends and family without using lots of religious words that you have to Google? So what I want to do this morning is to uh, suggest just one way of looking at it that you might find helpful. As the Bible story box set, seasons one to three. Season one is what we call the Old Testament, season two, the New Testament, and season three is the one that we're in right now. Season three is exciting because that is when we are invited to be the cast. Season three is when God invites us into the story. So just a couple of quick things to say at the outset. If you were here the last couple of weeks, then you'll already uh, know this, um, or if you've watched the uh, videos on the website. So the biblical writers used the literary styles of their day to explain what was important what God wanted to communicate through them. And the kind of story that it is, is an explanatory story. It's a truth-telling story. It's not trying to teach us about science or natural history in the modern sense. So it's answering the why questions about life, not the how questions. It's explaining who God is and what he's like and who we are and what we're like from God's perspective, and how his story and our story are connected. And it uses lots of picture language because that's how they did things then. So we especially need to remember that when we're looking at Adam and Eve and the creation story, and when the Old Testament prophets are painting prophetic pictures about things that will happen in the future. Because obviously none of those are eyewitness accounts written down at the time. And that's very different, of course, when it comes to Jesus and the early church in the New Testament. Because there we are talking about eyewitness accounts that were written down at the time. So let me give you a quick look at how our Bible story box set hangs together. Now obviously we could have... 10 or 12 episodes in each season, but that would take us too long and be hard for us to remember. So instead, we're just going to focus on the main themes in each season. And they all begin with the letter C. Today's talk is brought to you 
by the letter C, as they say on Sesame Street. And to remember this version, this way of telling the Bible story, all you'll have to remember is eight words. So we start with the pilot episode, creation, which kind of sets the scene for everything that is going to happen in the whole story. And we're going to see how some of the themes in creation reappear in season two and then again in the finale in season three. So in creation, we see God speaking into being this incredible world full of beauty and majesty and mystery. And the pinnacle of that creation is people. Because unlike everything else, we were made in God's image and likeness. And when he finished on the final day, God looked at that whole package and he said it was very good. So this story doesn't start with original sin. It starts with original goodness, a creation that God made and said was very good. And despite all the problems that surfaced, he's never stopped seeing it that way, which is why we should look after it, and why even in its damaged state and our damaged state, God believes that that creation is worth saving, and we are worth saving as well. Genesis is telling us that God made us to be in a relationship with him, that our capacity to know him personally is part of being made in his image. And the story pictures that through Adam and Eve walking with God and talking with God in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. And because we were made in God's image, we were made with the capacity for our lives to be defined by love just as God is defined by love. Love for each other and love for him. But for our love to be real and to mean something, God had to take a risk when he created us. Love always involves risk, doesn't it? We can't love someone without taking a risk, whether they will love us in return. And the risk that God took when he created us was giving us a choice in what we call free will. Because there had to be the option built into creation of more than one story for us to live in. Otherwise, if there was only the one, then we would just be robots or household pets. If God forced us to love him or forced us to love other people, then that would be abuse. So when Adam and Eve decided to do the one thing that God asked them not to do, eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were exercising that free will. They were saying that we'll decide for ourselves what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. Thank you very much. We'll decide for ourselves how we're going to live. They opted out of God's version of the story. Now, when we read about Adam and Eve, we need to know that there is a wordplay going on here that would have been obvious to the original audience. And that's because the Hebrew word Adam is the word for mankind or humanity. So this story is not just talking about one couple, it's talking about all of us. It's not just telling us what they were like and what they did, it's telling us what we are like and what we do. It's not just their story, in other words, it's our story as well. 
So this very good creation soon gave way to crisis. As all of the stories that we read about in Genesis unfold one by one, we see selfishness and independence and a desire to be in control starting to dominate human life. We see that in Adam and Eve, in Cain and Abel, Lamech, the Tower of Babel. They're all painting a picture, not just of one crisis, of one couple eating an apple that they shouldn't have, but a whole series of crises, of relationship breakdowns with God and with each other. Family, work and society all becoming damaged. Life has now become about getting, not giving. About serving me, not serving each other, let alone serving God. There was just the one story, but now there's a second one that started, a parallel story. Humanity has started writing its own and writing God out of it. And one of the first consequences of it all going wrong is that Adam and Eve pick up a distorted idea of who God is and what he's like. We see fear replacing love in how they see him, what they think he's all about. Genesis 3.10, Adam says, I was afraid of you, so I hid. So that image of God in us that we were created with gets more and more damaged and dirty and distorted as time goes on. And sometimes we look around and we think it seems to be lost completely. Humanity has embraced what we call evil. So we see here stories of personal violence, military violence and economic violence. And even the natural world has somehow been knocked off kilter with earthquakes and hurricanes and floods. It's as if Natural disasters are mimicking and mirroring the moral and spiritual disasters. And because all of the wrong choices that we make in life have consequences, especially relational consequences, one of those consequences of this selfishness and independence and desire to be in control is the loss of that original, personal, intimate relationship with God. The kind of people that we became separated us from him. So how could God restore this creation that started off so very good? Already in the story of Noah and the ark, we see that a a straight remake of Adam and Eve, just starting again with the same materials, that wasn't going to be the answer. Just getting rid of all the really bad people wasn't enough. Because the problems of human nature just keep coming back time and again. So as season one continues, we see this crisis that we've made giving way to a commitment that God makes. A promise that he repeats time and again to different members of the cast throughout that season one. The technical word for it is covenant. God committing that he will rescue the story. And this rescue mission starts with a family that grows to become a nation. A family that God miraculously brings into being through an elderly couple who were far too old to have children. Choosing the most unlikely heroes, as God so often does, in Abraham and Sarah. 
And the key verse in this rescue plan is Genesis 12:2, where God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And you know, that is still central to the plan, even now in season three. I will bless you not just so that you are blessed, but so that you will be a blessing. Because God never makes us great for any other reason. So God chooses this people, this nation, to model what life should look like when it's lived God's way. But what we find is that being the people of God just doesn't come naturally to them. The crisis of human selfishness and independence is just too deeply rooted. It's become too embedded in human nature. So we see God having to explain what living right looks like in hundreds of commandments, what to do and what not to do. Not just those famous 10 commandments, but over 600 of them. And the more they had, of course, the more there were to fail to live up to. And what this was showing us is that ultimately it just isn't possible to be the people that God wants us to be and we were created to be just by living by a set of rules. There aren't enough rules in the world for that. And even if there were, we'd never be able to follow them. You can't have a relationship with rules. And towards the end of season one, we see some people starting to lose sight of the end game, thinking that the rules were the thing and more important than the relationship they represented. They got the cart before the horse. So what we see is this divine initiative failing, as God, of course, knew that it would. Whatever ways we try as humans, we'll never succeed on our own in being a people of God. Just trying hard to be nicer people and following rules is not going to do it. Something fundamental about who we are as people has to change. And only God himself can miraculously bring that about. So we see these failings coming through over and over again in the stories in the remaining episodes in season one, where there is like an extended period of conversations when the Old Testament prophets engage in a dialogue between God and his people. We see going on a battle for hearts and minds. Will the people turn back to God and to his story or keep on choosing their own selfish story? All the episodes are telling us and all the conversations are telling us that whatever form of government, whether it's judges or kings or priests or prophets, whatever gifted individual, whatever great warrior is leading the people, human nature means that it is never going to work long term. It needs something more. And as we read all of these stories about Israel in season one, we need to know that the stories are not there to tell us how bad Israel is and how Israel failed. The story of Israel is just an example. This story of one nation is showing us things that are true of all nations. These stories of people are showing us things that are true of all people, including us. If it had been any other nation, the story would have turned out just the same.
It was going to take God himself intervening to do something spectacular, unexpected and unprecedented that would be a game changer. In season one, God makes a new and final promise, a new and final commitment. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And this covenant is what Jesus was talking about in season two when he shared bread and wine with his disciples at the Last Supper, what we call now communion. And he said, this cup is this new covenant in my blood shed for you at the cross. The ultimate commitment that God could make to our story. Which brings us to the centre point of this whole box set, the pivotal moment, season two and the coming of Jesus. Season two is when God himself, through his son, steps in to our story. God himself coming into our world and into our humanity to rescue it from within, to experience life as we do, becoming one of us in every way apart from sin. The traumas and the hurts and the pain that comes with being human. The consequences of having to live in a broken and damaged world. And ultimately, to allow himself to be abused and murdered. As the last and final act of a broken and damaged world, the ultimate rejection of the creator. But what looked for all of the world to be a defeat turned out to be the complete opposite. It becomes the pivotal moment when the damage and destruction in this world goes into reverse. Just like when the snow begins to melt in Narnia and the power of the White Witch begins to fade, if you know the story. God's future is coming into our present. The kingdom of God has arrived. And the miracles that Jesus did were not in themselves the end game. They're what we call signposts, signs and wonders pointing us to the way that the world is one day going to be fully and completely. A place of complete healing where sin and death and suffering are taken out and destroyed. And the same thing is true when we do the stuff that Jesus did in the power of the Holy Spirit. They are signposts too. Jesus became the first of a new people of God according to a new pattern that in him we can be part of. It says in Romans 5 that sin and death came into the world through Adam. Adam meaning humanity. But the defeat of sin and death and the reversing of its consequences came into the world through Jesus, who it calls the second Adam. And in Jesus' virgin birth, God was breaking the line of succession in what humanity had become, remaking us in the image and likeness of God once again, in the image and likeness of Jesus. 
giving us the opportunity to die to our old way of life in Adam and to start again with a new kind of life in Christ. John 1.12 says, to all who received him, he gave power to become children of God. And then in season three, in what we call church, the resurrected Jesus offers us the opportunity to join him in his story. Through the Holy Spirit, he gives us the power to reject all of the competing stories that life wants to sell us. And it's called church because we are called to do this together. Just as Israel was called as a people, we too are called as a people who will model what it looks like to live together and love together and give together and serve together, a people who will put Jesus first, a people who are called to model what community looks like in how we live, love, and relate to each other differently than the world. When a group of people want Jesus to be Lord, where the rule and reign of God is our priority. To show the people around us who God is and what he's like and how he's changed us and how he can change them too by the power of the Holy Spirit. A people who want to join him in his mission to be good news to the poor and to set the captives free. People who don't just want to be blessed but who also want to be a blessing. What's so exciting about this current season three is that we are in it now. We've been invited, all of us, not just to be in the cast, but to be the cast. We're not just rereading that script from seasons one and two, and we're not just in the audience watching. We've been empowered to do the stuff that Jesus did. Signs not just that the kingdom came in Jesus, past tense, but signs that it's still here and it's advancing, that God's future is coming into our present. So we're in season three right now, and the episodes are still being recorded. So as trained actors steeped in the characters and the themes and the events of seasons one and two, we are now invited not just to repeat those old episodes, but to continue the drama to take it forward in our day and time and place and to do it in ways that are faithful to those past characters, faithful to the whole story so far and above all, faithful to the divine author who's there in person working with us on the set. And then finally, we have the season three finale. We see how it's all going to end how the story will come to its completion in all its fullness. And just like at the very start of the story, again, we see it described in picture language, painting a picture with words of what it's going to be like. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, 
I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The picture it's painting here is of God speaking a new kind of world into being. And the reason there's no longer any sea here is because in the ancient world, the sea was symbolic of chaos and disorder, hostile forces breaking out in natural disasters. But of course, all of that will be gone. We also see God himself once again coming to live with people as he did in the Garden of Eden and as he promised he would do in that new covenant that he committed to through Jeremiah where he said, I will be their God and they will be my people. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. No more death, mourning, crying or pain because the old order of things that caused all of those has been taken out and destroyed. God is making everything new. And I think the reason that it pictures God speaking here in the first person is that once again it is happening by the power of his word. Once again he is speaking this into being. Recreating everything that was so very good about that original creation but this time with all of the bad stuff that's damaged it and harmed it and all of the people who still want to damage it and harm it by living their own story, all of that taken out. And the good news of the gospel is that through Jesus, this is what's coming. God's future is coming into our present. So when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come and your will be done, when we pray that in our situations and our lives, that is what we're praying for. We're saying, Lord, would you bring your future into our present experience? Would you bring the way things will be into the way things are right now? God's future began with the coming of Jesus, the turning around of the supertanker of human history. And it's continuing through us as his people now in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it will continue until one day when Jesus returns to complete the job. So living as we are now in this season three is kind of like the best of times and the worst of times. It's the best of times because Jesus has come. He's poured out the Holy Spirit and we're experiencing some of the first fruits of the kingdom being here. But it's also the worst of times too, in a sense, because there are still tears in our eyes to be wiped away. We still experience death and mourning and crying and pain. We see the kingdom come now, but not yet in all its fullness. So we still need faith and trust that in God's good time, he will complete the story while we are living in this now and not yet. So let's have one final quick look at this Bible story box set, seasons one, two, and three. And those eight words that you need to remember if you want to tell the story this way. Obviously, you don't need to tell it this way. There's more stuff that you could include and there's some stuff you could leave out. Some of it you could explain differently and some stuff you could emphasize more. The key thing is that each of us is able to explain that story in ways that make sense to us 
language that makes sense to us, concepts that make sense to us, that are faithful to Scripture and will make sense to our friends. So what are some of the uh, takeaways maybe this morning? What difference does it make to our lives to think of the Bible story this way? I think the first thing that we might like to ask ourselves is, are we really living in God's story? Or have we just imported a few features of that story into ours? Have we just made our story a little bit more religious? I think the question that God is asking us is fundamentally, which story am I living in? God's or my own? Because we can't keep a foot in both stories. Otherwise, we will be the most miserable of people. The gospel is an invitation to sell out and to bring my story into his. So if we haven't yet done so, or maybe we know that we haven't really done it properly, we need to make a decision. That today is the point in my life journey when I change stories. When I ask Jesus to fully and completely come into my story. And I submit my story to his. For every single one of us, our story involves a choice. God will not force anyone to love him. And he won't force anyone to be part of his story any more than he did at the beginning. So here's the question. Do we want to be a spectator while season three plays out in this world through his church? Or do we want to join the cast? Do we want to be part of God's future? Do we want to get our life in step with God's future starting right now?